printed in your bulletin on page 4. Um, please follow. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer-Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave, him, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Let's say a word of prayer uh, before we look at this passage. God, thank you for giving us this word, a word of challenge, a word of comfort. Uh, thank you for giving us Jesus, a Savior of challenge, a Savior also of comfort. And we pray, God, that you would be present in a real, powerful way in our community, in our individual thoughts, lives, and our hearts. Inhabit your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at the life of Abraham, studying it in the book of Genesis, and it's a story of faith. What does it look like? What does it mean to walk a life where you are trusting God and growing in that trust? And as we've seen, it's also a story about failures of faith. And Abram, the great hero, of the faith, the patriarch, failing. Another such passage today. We looked last week at the theme of waiting, something we all hate to do, something maybe that defines the place in which you are today. 
Do you feel like you have been waiting for something? Waiting for God's blessing or some improvement in life, an opportunity or a relationship or maybe a painful trial to finally please pass? And here we have this passage that raises a question like this to us. What's the longest you've ever waited for something that you really wanted? What's the longest? Well, here's Abram now in year 10 of his waiting. Nine years after the last chapter of Genesis, when he received grand covenantal confirmation to God that God is for him, that he's serious about his promises. But it was 10 years ago that God said that he would bless Abram in all aspects of life, but specifically that he would give Abram a son, a child from whom many descendants would form and that God would give Abram a whole nation, make him into a great nation. Abram now is 85 or 86 years old. Sarai, about 70 years, 75 years old. They're not getting any younger. The clock is ticking. And verse 1 tells us, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, not yet. Abram and Sarai are getting tired of waiting just like we do. We start to think, don't we, oftentimes, I have waited long enough for God to provide. I need to provide. Sometimes it's motivated by fear. What if I miss out on something? Sometimes motivated by bitterness where you start to ask yourself, whose fault is this? And this is a little bit of what we see in Sarai in verse 2, kind of blaming God for her circumstances. The Lord has kept me from having children. God is against me. He's the problem here. Are you starting to feel that way, friends, in the waiting room? And so Sarah and Abram, start to say to themselves, start to say to each other, it is time, time to take matters into our own hands. We're told she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Sarah devises a plan with Abram. She says, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her, as sort of a surrogate mother. Abram agrees to the plan. He's complicit in this. Sleeps with Hagar and she Conceive. Now understand, in this time and culture, the practice of surrogate motherhood for an infertile woman through her maidservant was actually very common. It was legal. It was actually socially and culturally acceptable in the ancient Near East. But this passage very clearly, from a biblical perspective, frowns upon the scheme that Abram and Sarah come up with because they were called to trust God and His timetable. Here's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Is there some way that I'm refusing to trust God's timetable 
And instead, I'm going out and finding me a Hagar and manufacturing me an Ishmael. Are there ways that we are going out and grabbing us a Hagar and manufacturing us an Ishmael out of impatience, out of a lack of trust, out of bitterness, out of fear, out of everything but the faith and the trust that God has earned? Because all through Abram's life, thus far as we've seen in past weeks, God has been so kind, so faithful, so protecting, so providing, so gracious, so rescuing in every imaginable way. What does this look like for you? From the beginning of the start of this church, for me, this has been a battle. Because starting up a new church requires not only a lot of labor, a lot of community building, a lot of love, a lot of fun, a lot of joy, things we have experienced. It also requires a lot of patience. A lot of long-term horizon building. A lot of times when people say, hey, how is the new church going, Grace Brittany Hill? Sometimes a little tongue-in-cheek, I'll say, ask me in 20 years. Because that's the way we need to be building, looking forward into the future. But sometimes I want my Ishmael now. Sometimes I want things delivered now. No matter what the cost, because it's time for me to get my timetable on the calendar. And of course, it always gets weird if you start to press things along, especially a community building project like this, starting to force growth or manipulate people's uh, motives for engaging in community or overly engineering diversity, whether spiritually or culturally, ethnically, or manufacturing change in people's lives. All these ways that it starts to fall apart once you start grabbing yourself a Hagar and manufacturing an Ishmael in church life. But what does it look like for you in your life? Maybe in the realm of dating or marriage, Where you start to say to yourself, I'm tired of waiting. I've waited long enough. It's time for me to grab me a Hagar and manufacture an Ishmael. Starting a relationship that you know from the outset might be unhealthy. Taking steps to manipulate a person or a relationship in a way that you know is unjust or unfair. Maybe financially. You're not getting to where you want to be or where you feel like you're owed. And so you start to cut corners. Shortcuts, getting there a little bit more quickly. I'm done with waiting. Or maybe as you see the neighborhood and going through different changes, not always visible, but in people's lives being affected or people being lifted up or people being, well, encountered by God. And maybe just sort of hurrying it up instead of having a humble posture of building into people's lives slowly. Just like we've said in the past with our listening and learning project, cultivating the kind of posture we want to have towards our neighbors. Look, friends, we're not here as a church just to come here and transform the neighborhood. We don't have the power to do that, nor do we have the right timetable in mind if we're thinking of doing that, because God is the only one that can really build in the way that we we need to build. Namely, this slogan that we've had that you can't love and serve your neighbors rightly until you first know them. 
So can we slow down to hear stories and get to know people and see them on our street blocks and in the stores before we're just trying to hand out resources instead of build relationships? All these different ways that we get so antsy to move forward, solving these problems with our own wisdom and strength, trying to get things done in our lives, grabbing us a Hagar, manufacturing an Ishmael, because God's timetable can't be right, I need to take over. Or, maybe you're just saying to yourself, well, I'm just going to give God a little hand here. Just going to help him out, speed things up just a little bit. It's not a big deal, just a little bit. Or maybe I'm just going to put this into place as a backup plan. Okay, God, maybe Abram's thinking, God might come through in the end with Sarah, but just in case, dangerous words to ourselves. Just in case things don't work out, here we go. Backup plan. Maybe you say, hey, what's the big deal? Right, so I'm a little impatient. So I press things along a little bit. doesn't really seem like it's hurting anyone. Oh, yeah? See, the passage tells us that sometimes initially our concubine strategies don't look so bad, but you do create more problems, broken relationships, even oppression. Everything gets really messy in Abram's household. You see, uh, Hagar does get pregnant, is having a child, and now she's got a new status in this household, a new identity as the bearer of the great Abram's child. And so Hagar, in her own faulty way, begins to despise her mistress, begins to look down on her in some way. Sarah has a fit. She begins to blame Abram. Abram is passive, like a good dude, shirking responsibility, right? Passing it on, says, do whatever you want to do with her. She belongs to you anyway. So Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar, which probably means she beat her. And so Hagar runs away. When we start to look for shortcuts... When we start to get impatient with God's timetable, when we start to manufacture and engineer blessings into our own lives by our own strength, with our own short-sighted wisdom, so often we are tempted to abuse power that we have, not operating out of love and trust, but using and even abusing other people. Do you see that when that happens? Whether in your relationships or your finances or whatever it might be in your lives. When we start to pick up the pace in this sort of way, you're always crushing people around you. What does that look like for you? That's what's the big deal about this. But maybe even bigger, maybe an even bigger deal in the way that we take matters into our own hands is this. It doesn't always look bad on the surface. You know, sometimes, just like with Abram and Sarah, it might be a socially and culturally acceptable thing that you do. No one else really seems to think there's anything wrong with it. But underneath, it is birthed out of a deep distrust of God and a deep vie for power and authority over our own lives, plain God in my life. 
saving ourselves, making ourselves the blessed ones, playing God in our lives. The book of Galatians in the New Testament is so helpful because it reflects back on this story of Abram, Sarah, and Hagar. And it tells us that this is really essentially a story of contrast between those who depend upon their own efforts in order to be blessed and accepted by God, and those who depend upon God's promise of grace to bring into their lives blessing and acceptance by God. It raises this question, do you believe that the life that you always longed for is something to be received as a blessing, as a gift from God, or is it always and only something that needs to be achieved by your own striving and scheming? And that very well could be the difference in whether you know the God of the Bible or not. Because how we respond to these seasons of waiting often reveals the way that we fundamentally relate to God. Whether by our own achieving and striving or by our own receiving and trusting. Especially in the way that we receive the provision of God's Son who did what we could not do in providing us salvation. Sinners who can only dig their own grave and make it worse in trying to earn God's favor where God says, I will come in the person of my son. I will take the punishment you deserve and I will give you all the basis for acceptance and righteousness in my sight that you could not earn. I'll give it to you in my son. It's not achieved. It's received by faith with joy, with open arms. Hallelujah. Because that's the only way I'm going to be saved. And it's the only way that you will too. Do you see how you respond to your waiting room periods could reveal to you fundamentally whether or not you understand the story of grace. Sarah was convinced God doesn't care. God is oblivious. God is always holding back. And if I don't see what he's up to, he must be doing nothing. Right? This is Sarah's heart and why she throws in the towel together with Abram. Why they come up with this new scheme and plan. But what if she had trusted that God was taking care of her? That God was true to his promise? That God was working? What if she believed that? The key to this passage is that all throughout, Sarah and Abram are being compared and contrasted to Hagar and her encounter with God. In other words, what if Sarah and Abram had known about God what Hagar came to know about God? What if they knew God in the way that Hagar would know God? And what if we would too? Would it, could it help us in the waiting room? Three things Hagar encounters of God in her suffering, in her affliction, and then we'll be done. 
Hagar, first of all, comes to know God and sees God as a God of watchful compassion. Watchful compassion. Verses 7 to 14, we see this. You know, recently I was talking to a friend and a colleague about some areas of struggle in my life and just a rare moment. I don't know if you have friends like this where you can just unload. It's just right on the verge of venting. And sometimes it is just that, venting. But it's honest, it's true, and it is full of hope. And I'm talking to him, and he's quietly listening along. And he actually chose not to say much, which actually was a big lesson to me, as I'm learning how to listen and walk with people. And in fact, in the end, he didn't even give me any advice. He simply asked if he could pray for me, pray with me. But I knew he cared Do you know how? Because I could see it in his eyes. The softness of his eyes as I was sharing my stories. The attentiveness, even when I would look down, sometimes in awkwardness, because I'm sort of opening up, right? Look down in awkwardness, and I'd look back up, and I can tell his gaze hadn't changed. The ways in which he came with concern and trust and love. And then especially when I noticed towards the end, his eyes welling up with tears, even though mine hadn't. And I knew his gaze was fixed upon me because his heart was fixed upon me. Sometimes you know a person's compassion because of their eyes. Because they see you. Because they're looking after you. Which is exactly what Hagar says she experiences of God. She is running away. Probably running home to Egypt. She's tired. She's in a desert. Most likely she's thirsty. So she stops near a spring for some refreshment. Maybe for survival. And there the angel of the Lord finds her, talks with her, promises to bless her and her son's descendants. And her response at the end of this encounter we find in verse 13, she says these incredibly deep, profound, and yet simple words, God, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me in my Affliction. I have now seen the one who sees me. Do you know a God who notices you in your hard times? Do you know a God who promises to be like a father whose gaze and attention is fixed upon you wherever you go? Loved hanging out for a few minutes, a little bit of time with a fellow dad in our community at a playground this weekend. And what fun it was to see him watching his young daughter, maybe two years old, running around in the playground about 50 feet away. And even as I was talking to him, enjoying seeing him stealing quick glances over at his daughter, playing amongst the other kids. This daddy who never took his eyes off his little girl, even as she was a little bit of a distance away. And I knew, I knew that if anything happened to her, he would be there in about three quarters of a second because he was watching her. You have a God like that. And especially for those of you that are waiting in a place of 
pain and suffering and weariness, and you just don't know when it's going to end. And you don't know when the circumstances are going to change, and you're just ready to give up and throw in the towel. And maybe you're starting to say, God has abandoned me. God doesn't care. God has looked the other way. God has been blind to my pain. Would you take on the words of Hagar and make it your own confession? God sees you, friend. God sees you in your affliction. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now and you feel stuck in your marriage or you feel like you don't know what to do with your relationships or you don't know what to do with your family. And you're just tempted to say, I've been waiting for long and maybe just too long. Friend, God sees you. Or maybe you've been battling a chronic illness or maybe an area of spiritual weakness or even sin and you're just running out of steam. And every now and then you ask yourself, maybe you even say it out loud, does God even care? God sees you. God sees you. God sees you. And what difference would it make to us in our times of afflicted waiting if we knew that your Father's gaze is upon you? He's not ignorant of any of your trials. He's there with you in the valley of the shadow of death. He's not oblivious to what you go through. In fact, he went through it himself. It's the story of his son, Jesus come in to walk in your shoes, in your afflictions. God, who took on real human eyes, that he could look out upon the afflictions of those whom he would love and serve. Jesus, who hung on the cross, and who in every way had earned the gaze of his Father, suffered the wrath and condemnation of his Father, turning his gaze away in infinite estrangement and judgment. Because Jesus went through that for us, He has purchased for us the unchanging eyes of God our Father for you and for me. What if we experience this of God? How might it change our experience of the waiting room? Secondly, a God not just of watchful compassion, but secondly, a God of overflowing favor. In verses 10 and 11, Sarah has this suspicion building up in her. God is holding back. God is withholding something from me. A great blessing that I want, one that I cannot have. Are you feeling like that today? God is holding out on you. Hagar experiences a God that's completely different from that picture. A God whose generosity overflows and gushes in kindness even to those who oppose Him. You see this promise of blessing that God gives to Hagar in verse 10, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Hagar and his child and their descendants are not a part of this tight covenant community that God had established just in the past chapter in Genesis 15. 15. And yet he gives to her a promise that almost sounds just like what God is promising to Sarah and Abram, which would be eventually materialized in the person of Isaac and the nation of Israel. 
He's going to bless her child, Ishmael. He's going to give him descendants, make him into a great nation. Now, there are real differences between this promise and the promise to Abram. Ishmael is described as a a wild donkey of a man. It's a metaphor for being a reckless loner, an individualistic and rebellious person. There's conflict and opposition that he will experience here. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He'll live in hostility towards his brothers. But even his name itself marks out God's kindness to Hagar Because his name means what? The Lord has heard your mercy. What are we learning here? God looks after the oppressed. God protects the wronged. Even if they don't worship him or know him, even if they themselves wrong his people, this is how incredible God's kindness is. He doesn't just withhold blessings to those that know him. He's a God who says, every one of you made in my own image, because you're a human being, even in your rebellion against me, I will give you joy and kindness and sunshine and rain and enjoyment of community and flourishing in all these sorts of ways. You don't deserve it. And I would hope that one day you might see the gap between what you deserve and what I've already given you so that you might be humbled to saying all this that I have already is but a foretaste of what God truly offers me, and that is salvation and life in His Son Jesus through the greater Abraham. But can you see the character of God here that Hagar says? Not a God that's holding back, but a God who is so overflowing in His kindness. Do you see that in God today? Or do you choose to, or are you feeling like God is only presenting himself as a miser to you, making you suspicious of his character? Look, here's the key point, friends. If God would listen to Hagar and see Hagar in this way with whom God did not make his covenant, how much more to Sarah? If God would be so kind to Hagar in this way, how much more to Abram and how much more then to the followers of Jesus, the greater Abraham, you have a God of overflowing blessing before you. And thirdly and lastly, we'll finish up with this, a God of strange ways. A God not just of watchful compassion, a God of overflowing favor, but Hagar experiences a God of strange ways. And oh, if we would see him this way too. Do you notice that curious verse in the middle there is the angel of the Lord, God's representative, interacts with Hagar. Verse 9, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And maybe that stands out to you as just being an outrageous thing calling this woman to move back into a place of oppression. And we could go on and on and talk through what the Bible does say about slavery, what it doesn't say about slavery, an important piece of understanding biblical history. But let's raise at least this question. What is going on here? Why is God calling Hagar to go back to her abusive mistress? And the answer is because it's in being attached to Abraham 
that Hagar will experience this blessing from God. It's by being in his household that she will find the fulfillment of her son being born and her life being flourishing and her family turning into a great nation. And it leads us to ponder this nutty question, what if, friends, what if your place of waiting right now is God's invitation for you to be in a place that appears to be, that looks to be affliction and oppression, but in fact is a place of blessing. That on the surface of it, it really does hurt. And it really does feel like bondage and oppression and affliction. And yet God says, it's in that, indeed, it's through that, because you're connected to Abraham, the greater Abraham, Jesus himself, that it's in that suffering that you will find the blessing of God. It looks like affliction, but it's actually life. It looks like affliction, but it's actually freedom and blessing which is the exact opposite of how Sarah is looking at things, right? Sarah who's saying, if I can't see him at work, he must be doing nothing. Hagar who's learning that even when it looks like he's going backwards, he's still moving me forwards. Our places of waiting so often are hard, painful, trying places. And here is a call to trust in God's strange, strange ways, like the ways of a cross. His strange ways, like achieving the salvation of humanity, life itself through a death. In coming himself, not in obvious, ostensible glory, but in weakness and in ugliness, being forgettable as the Son of God as he walked this earth. A strange way of accomplishing salvation, wouldn't you say? Why would God start working any differently today? Could it be that that place of pain and affliction could very well be the place of blessing and freedom for you. A song we're about to sing, Be Still My Soul, has these lyrics in it. We'll sing it in a second. Be still my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. The path to joy is often a strange thorny way. And Hagar believes God. You know how we know? She went back. She went back. And she could go back because she knew that she has a God who sees her. Not a God who's oblivious to her affliction. That she knows that she has a God of stunning, overflowing favor. Not a miserly God that's holding back His blessing. And that she sees and knows a God of strange, loving ways. 
even when it looks like he's doing nothing, or even worse, doing bad to her. Hagar goes back, and we too can then go back, back into the place of waiting, trusting this God. Will you wait in trust, in faith? Will you? Will we? Let's pray. God, we're needing you for this. We're needing you for this. Because everything in our minds, even our hearts, sometimes our bodies screams enough. We've had enough. And it's time to take matters into our own hands. Make it happen. And yet you call us to wait patiently with joy, even with pain mixed in, deep trust in the God that you are. Show us how to do this. Give us power to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's ponder this more by singing a song that's about being still in a time of trial, a time of waiting. Be still, my soul. Let's stand together and sing.